What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Before there was NSYNC or even Glee, there were the Monkees. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Today we dive into the story of the original made-for-TV band, The Monkees. And later, we'll review the new album by indie folk artist Andrew Bird. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Greg, it's impossible to hear that song and not smile. It won an Academy Award for Song of the Year in 1965 when it had been in the Disney film Mary Poppins and the brother duo songwriting team that had written that song and so many others went up to accept the Academy Award. They gave a one-word acceptance speech, said Robert Sherman, supercalifragilistic, said Richard expialidocious. Robert Sherman died recently at 86, and he is worth remembering because this is the kind of career you just don't see in pop music anymore. He and his brother started out as a songwriting team uh, with some pop songs. They had written that hit, Tall Paul, recorded and became a hit in 59 by Annette Funicello, You're 16 by Johnny Burnett was a hit in 1960, and then Ringo Starr later covered it, Gold Can Buy You Anything But Love for Gene Autry, The Singing Cowboy. And then they began a very fruitful collaboration with Disney. Walt Disney loved this songwriting team. Another song from Mary Poppins' Feed the Birds, he claimed, made him cry every time he ever heard it. They also wrote It's a Small World. If you've ever been to the theme parks, you hear that about 17 million (laughs) times, that song. But they did other movies. Snoopy Come Home. Remember that? Snoopy, Mm -hmm. right? Great movie. Huckleberry Finn, The Slipper and the Rose, Charlotte's Web. My personal favorite, though, of all the Disney stuff, Winnie and the Pooh and the Honey Tree, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, is The Jungle Book. They wrote the song I Want to Be Like You, which was recorded by Louis Prima and his band. Now, here were these wild, nightlife, Vegas musicians. There's a wonderful little trailer I used to watch with my daughter when we watched The Jungle Book together when she was a kid about the making of the soundtrack. And you see Louis Prima and his macho Vegas musicians walking around the studio like orangutans to get in the mode to record this song, which is the theme of The King of the Apes. I think to pay tribute to Robert Sherman, at the age of 86. we got to play that tune. I Want to Be Like You from The Jungle Book, written by Robert Sherman and his brother on Sound Opinions. Now I'm the king of the swingers, oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop, and that's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town. And be just like the other men I'm tired of walking around Oh, ooby-doo I want to be like you I want to walk like you Talk like you 
Listening to Sound Opinions. once again made some huge news earlier this week. Two or three times a year they have these big press conferences where they unveil their latest technical wonder. The new one is the third generation iPad. But we were much more intrigued by a different story. Yes, indeed, Jim. At the top, we heard Neil Young performing the song Mr. Soul from his trans album back in the early 80s. He's been obsessed with technology, and lately specifically MP3 technology and its relationship to musicians. He is on the warpath that MP3s just do not sound very good. And apparently, he was talking with Steve Jobs about some changes in the MP3 format. What everybody gets on an MP3, Neil Young said, is 5% of what we originally made in the studio. We live in the digital age, and unfortunately, it's degrading our music, not improving. Apparently, Jobs heard what he had to say. Greg, what Neil Young was actually advocating and hoping that Apple could produce would be a whole new file, better than an MP3, that would be higher fidelity. You know, the trade-off has been portability versus sound quality. There's no two ways about it. The MP3 today is not as good as the sound that we had on a CD, and audiophiles would say the CD was not as good sound as we had on vinyl. We've been going backwards. On the other hand, we haven't had to carry records or CDs around. We've been able to put into our phone or whatever device we want an entire music collection. Apple, very quietly, the last couple of weeks, has introduced a new section of the iTunes store labeled Mastered for iTunes. Mastering is a way to use software to treat an audio file after it's been recorded to enhance its quality, to preserve its quality and not lose as much of the sound, okay? Because you're really crushing a lot of sound into a tiny MP3 file. That's the problem. Apple is making this software available so that people can master songs out of the recording studio for a sound that is better than CD. Absolutely better than MP3s. They're claiming better than CD sound quality. Some people would say still not as good as what vinyl was or as good as what is initially coming out of that recording studio. But we're apparently moving in the right direction. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. We go wherever we want to, do what we like to do. We don't have time to get restless, there's always something new. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the classic theme from The Monkees, the television show about that wacky band in the 60s comprised of three Americans, Mickey Dolenz, Michael Nesmith, and Peter Tork, and the Englishman, Davy Jones. Jones died last week at age 66. Jim, we spoke briefly about him and his place in pop culture during the last episode. Jones wasn't a great singer, but he was a charmer, and he made the girls swoon. That was a very important part of that monkey's formula. Now, that formula was manufactured at a pivotal time in pop music and went on to have a lasting influence. So this gives us a good opportunity to return to our 2011 look at the band and its impact on music and marketing. Greg, a lot of people were laughing at the Monkees from the minute they debuted in 1966, saying, this isn't real, man. This isn't our youth culture. This is an obvious attempt to rip off the popularity of the Beatles, make a television show out of what was magical about a hard day's night. Uh, yeah, all of that is true. But they sold 50 million records. These guys, whether you want to consider them quote-unquote real musicians or not, had an incredible catalog of songs written by some of the finest songwriters of the 60s and 70s. Sure, there is a big component of business to the story of the Monkees. Who were the puppeteers pulling the strings? You had Don Kirshner acting as the music supervisor. You had Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider developing the uh, the band, really, for television. They were made for TV, but then they took on a life of their own. There is a complicated and fascinating story about the band as business, about the band as music. And to take us through all of it, we have Monkey superfan Eric Lefkowitz, who wrote a fine book, Monkey Business, the Revolutionary Made-for-TV Band. Eric, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. Day one, there's an idea for a television show. Obviously, we want to put together a band uh, and put them on TV, kind of like those Beatles folks, running around having all these adventures, trading witty repartee, indulging in some slapstick, and in between playing songs. You know, that's your classic model, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. The Beatles are the template here. And uh, there really hadn't been an American answer to the Beatles when it came to a phenomenon, you had the the Beach Boys, the Love and Spoonful, great American bands, but none of them were truly a phenomenon. And that's what uh, Schneider and Rafelson were setting out to do is like create a phenomenon for television and also marry it to music, which is really easier said than done when you think about it. It is uh, really hard to crank out a couple songs per week and sitcom uh, episode per week. Uh, it's amazing that they actually pulled it off. Well, the timing was great, too, because you mentioned the Beatles, the huge influence that they had and the huge impact. And you talk about this mania gap in the book. Where do all these teenagers and preteens go to scream now that the Beatles have become more sophisticated as a pop band? They're no longer the lovable mop tops. They have moved on from that image that we saw in Hard Day's Night and on the Ed Sullivan Show in 64. And into this gap stepped the monkeys in 65, 66, 67. Well, that's right. They really straddle an interesting era of the Monkees because uh, the first music is really brill-building pop. And by the end, they're like full-blown psychedelic, you know, uh, crazy rock band actually playing their instruments. So they straddle the era. They connect a lot of things together. It's amazing how many musicians are connected, for example, to the Monkees from uh, studio mu musicians, tremendous players, you know, Glenn Campbell, James Burton, just fantastic players to uh, their songwriters, to Jimi Hendrix, who opened up for them briefly on tour. Eric, when you say brill-building pop, you literally mean some of these people who were writing songs for the Monkees were brill-building veterans. Basically, all the songs were coming through Don Kirshner, also known as the Golden Ear. <laughs> 
most notably Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And uh, Don, Don lorded over a stable of songwriting talent that was astonishing. And he used it very well for the first couple of records, which were blockbuster records. Though you've played at love and lost and sorrows turned your heart to frost, I will melt your heart again. Remember the feeling as a child when you woke up and morning smiled. This time you felt like you did then. There's just no percentage in remembering the past. It's time you learn to live again at last. Come with me, leave yesterday behind. And take a giant step outside your mind. It's interesting, too, he had this system set up. He was a publishing empire in himself, basically, Kirshner. So he had this factory all set up for this group, basically. Everything was taken care of. He had the producers, he had the the songwriters, he had the TV show set up. How did they arrive on these four guys? What was it about these four guys that are the, over the 400 applicants that actually applied for the job? What was it about these four guys that, that made it work? Well, I think they were looking for a blend between the Beatles characters and personalities and perhaps the Beach Boys. I speculate that Peter Tork might have been chosen because he he looks a bit like Dennis Wilson. But basically, they were looking for uh, different slots. You have your John Lennon type, which uh, ended up being Michael Nesmith, somebody who was slightly arrogant, hard-headed character. Mickey Dolan's a bit like Ringo. They're both drummers, sort of happy-go-lucky. And then Torque is either the surfer or sort of the mystical George Harrison type. And then uh, Davey and, uh, you know, sort of matches up with Paul McCartney. Of course, you had to have a British guy in this band. So <laughs> Davey, Davey was a shoe in I'm forgetting my monkey's history from watching the TV shows. How did, did they ever explain why Davy Jones was in the United States with the rest of these guys? <laughs> No, it was absolutely never explained. And it turns out, talking about inside jobs, Davy Jones was really signed to this thing from the start. You could look at the series as a vehicle for Davy Jones. I want to be free Like the bluebirds flying by me Like the waves out on the blue sea Whatever your opinion of his talents as a rock and roller, the show was really built around Davey. He had been a star on Broadway already, and he was signed to the studio. So they were looking for a vehicle, and Davey has always been central to the Monkees. And the funniest thing is, of course, that both Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork were better singers. Nesmith would become by far the best musician. Davey was like the least talented guy. Well, I do speculate about that in, in the book. I think he's got this ineffable essence of celebrity. There's something about him. He's very, you know, eye-pleasing. He uh, has a great smile. He definitely lights up a stage. But when you come to, you know, brass tacks, Davey could be a liability. For example, on the second record, More of the Monkeys, which is their their best-selling record, there are a couple of tracks that just make you, you know, <laughs> run for the turntable to, to skip the track. They're just abominable. There'll be birds singing everywhere. And the wind will be blowing through your hair. I'll look into your eyes 
and wait for the prize. Your lips kissing mine with a love that is real. And you'll look so young and fair. On the day we fall in love, you and me. On the day we'll fall in love. You'll see. Well, it's interesting, too, that, uh, you know, they had these personalities that were in opposition to each other. There was sort of a built-in tension in the group because Nesmith and Tork came out of more of a musical background. They aspired to be relatively serious musicians. You had Jones and Dolans coming more from an acting background where it was more about performance and acting for them rather than musicianship, which was, you know, a low third on their list of priorities. How did they manage to even get along initially? I mean, what was it that brought these four guys together and actually allowed them to function as a seemingly charming group of guys who played off each other so well for those two years that the show was on television? That's a great question. I mean, the question is whether they ever actually did really get along. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some evidence that they never did, that they never did get along, that there was always uh, personality clashes. For example, Torque and Nesmith, as you mentioned, should have been allies, but they ended up being pretty much enemies. They were both highly individualistic. And they all were. And as for what got them through it all, I think it was the fact that there was so much talent surrounding them, and talented record producers and writers and talented TV script writers. And it's my opinion that when they lost that support system later on, that's where it all kind of went wrong. They were really just cogs in a machine. We all have our individual favorite monkey, but really I think it's the machine that put them across. Take the last train to Pottsville and I'll meet you at the station. You can be here by 4.30 because I've made your reservation. Don't be slow. No, no, no. No, no, no. We're going to continue talking about the backstory and influence of the monkeys after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later in the show, Jim and I review the rockified hip-hop release from Kid Cudi and Wizard. Take the last train of Clarksville Now I must hang up the phone I can't hear you in this noisy railroad station All right, I'm feeling low Try 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cotton, and today we're talking about the pop phenomenon known as the Monkees. Monkees teen idol Davy Jones died recently at age 66, and you've been listening to our 2011 conversation with Eric Lefkowitz, author of Monkey Business, the revolutionary made-for-TV band. The Monkees were in their heyday in the late 60s with a successful TV show, hit singles, and Beatlemania-level concerts. But their influence lives on today, Eric, especially when you think about the business model and the team behind it. Bob Rafelson, Burt Schneider for TV, record producer Don Kirshner for the music end. Look at a band like the Black Eyed Peas. They reinvent themselves with the addition of Fergie or, or the success of American Idol or Glee. We have come to expect that the pop machine can spit out these perfectly formed products that hit you on multiple platforms. In the Monkey's Day, it was lunchboxes and jigsaw puzzles. Now you have apps and clothing and movies and on and on and on. This was the birth of it. This is really a capitalist success story, isn't it? It is absolutely a capitalist story. At the same time, there really is a beating heart inside of it because part of the interest in the subject for me was the fact that the four monkeys rebelled against the system. You know, it's so perfect for the 60s, you know, Mm -hmm. to have this rebellion. And they wanted to play on their records. They wanted to be authentic. They wanted to turn the uh, brand into a band. But... uh, I'm just as fascinated by the machine part of it. Really, the geniuses behind this are Bert Schneider and Bob Rapelson. Mm-hmm. They saw the bigger picture on this, and it was proven later on when they produced Easy Rider, which was made from the profits they made on the monkeys, hmm. and then, of course, they went on to other things. It is interesting how you had this juxtaposition, because we look back on it now and we think it was all about selling out and just sort of a con job in a lot of ways. But in fact, there was a lot of subversive elements in what they were doing. You look back on that television show, and it was basically four grown-up kids unsupervised by the adults. The adults were kind of the dolts, the clueless ones. That was unprecedented for primetime television. Well, we're the, we're the band. We're the band that Miss Vandersnoot hired for the party. Is who we are. Yeah, there must be some mistake. We were expecting four gentlemen. Uh. Would you accept four ladies who shave? I can accept anything. Wait in here, ladies. Boys with long hair, girls who shave. The world's gone to pot. No one knows who these, who, who these days. And Last Train to Clarksville is another example. It's the band's first single, and you think, pleasant little pop song. But it's an anti-war anthem. That is quite true. In fact, I heard uh, Bob Dylan talking about that song, and he says, if you want to be subversive... Never tell anybody that you're being subversive. I, I think the Monkees' theme song is also really interesting that way. They they sing about they're the young generation and they've got something to say, but then there's other lines about, don't worry, you know, we're just walking down the street, we're not going to hurt you. We're, we're, fr- we're friendly guys. Hey, hey, we're the Monkees, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. We're just trying to be friendly. Come and watch us sing and play. We're the young generation, and we've got something to say. Oh. 
Well, and then you've got I'm Not Your Stepping Stone, which was initially released as a B-side. Mickey Dolan sang it, later adopted by groups like the Sex Pistols, which was eye-opening for a lot of people who, who remember these four kind of harmless dudes on this TV show. Suddenly, one of their songs becomes a punk anthem. It needs to be said that the counterculture, the uh, early baby boomers, if you will, just couldn't stand the monkeys. They they represented all that was evil about business. They were taking, basically hijacking their revolutionary moment, and they couldn't stand the monkeys. And basically, no credit was given to the monkeys in their own time. You know, you could look it up. But starting in the 70s, there was a revisionist attitude that began, perhaps with the Sex Pistols, but it probably began even earlier with people like Lester Bangs and people who embraced bubblegum pop music and uh, Malcolm McLaren. Or, or Frank Zappa. You know, the mothers of invention do, we're only in it for the money. And then you have Zappa popping up in, in the Monkees movie. The song was pretty white. Well, so am I. What can I tell you? You've been working on your dancing, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been rehearsing it. Glad you noticed that. Yeah, it doesn't leave much time for your music. You should spend more time on it because the youth of America depends on you to show the way. Yeah? Yeah. Monkeys is the craziest people. Even though they were despised by the counterculture, all the heroes of the counterculture loved the monkeys. There's a complete disconnect. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was on their tour and... uh, Crosby and Stills, yeah, they were friends of the band. They name-checked the Monkees on Buffalo Springfield record, for example. You've got Harry Nilsson getting his first break. But to the vanguard of the counterculture, this was the worst thing possible, the Monkees. You, you visit that music with fresh ears now, and you realize that there was a lot of stuff going on there that maybe wasn't apparent the first time around. You point out that by the third album, Monkey's Headquarters, they were pretty much a self-contained group at that point. They had broken free from the Kirshner factory and were allowed to make their own records, which is a pretty bold stroke within three albums, which they were coming out lickety-split at that point, and they were trying to capitalize on this TV show. How were they able to get their freedom that quickly and, and basically make a record unsupervised? Well, the whole thing happened very fast. That's for sure. It happened within six or seven months. They went from nobodies to, you know, household names and uh, suddenly were selling five million records. And they were the hottest act on the planet at one point, I would say early 1967. What happened was they kept agitating basically for studio time to express themselves. And Don Kirshner refused to let them do it. And eventually Kirshner was fired. They stepped in and made a record by themselves a true do-it-yourself attempt to express themselves called Headquarters. It's not the greatest record in the world. It doesn't sound as good as some of the other Monkees records, but it's really an authentic expression of four people on TV trying to become a band, and I still think it's fascinating and worth a listen. Learning from the rising 
heat to find a place to hide The grass is always greener growing on the other side And no time, no time, no time, no time for you listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking about the legacy of the monkeys with writer Eric Lefkowitz. So, Eric, the monkeys are moving toward independence. It's one of the oldest stories in rock history. They're mere puppets until they get big. And then, no one knows or cares who Don Kirshner or Bob Rafelson are. You can't have the monkeys without the four faces on the album covers. They learn this, and that leads us to head. This is their 1968 feature film. They made it when the TV show was canceled, but they're at the top of their powers. They can do whatever they want. Rafelson directs it. Schneider is the executive producer. An unknown Jack Nicholson is helping them write the screenplay. To whatever extent, there is a screenplay. You look at it now, you can't really imagine that they had any plan for this. The monkeys are just running around, going ape. I mean, this makes Magical Mystery Tour look focused and concise. It is a weird movie. Yes, and it's quite vexing. You know, if you don't understand the context of it, you might see this movie and just tune it out after five minutes because there's some real cringe-inducing avant-garde filmmaking going on at the beginning of this film. I mean, truly, you just don't know where you are at any point in the film. Uh, Yeah, but there's also the the Porpoise song and, and Circle Sky, you know, two of the greatest tracks the monkeys did. Some of the moments in this movie are some of the most brilliant moments in any rock movie by far, and I highly recommend it. I do think that you kind of almost need to understand what this movie is before you see it. If you don't know anything about the monkeys and you watch it, you really couldn't figure anything out. I mean, it just goes from scene to scene to scene, like a (laughs) pinball, you know, bouncing around. But some of those scenes are just flat out amazing. And it's, you know, it's funny, it's trippy, it's uh, weird. Oh, <laughs> this is not one of your standard brands. Oh, an El Zumo. Imagine having to smoke that whole thing. Smoking may be hazardous to your health. You yes, see that, but... Davey? Dave, where's Davey? Hey, Davey? Davey. 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 Hey, Davey. 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 They're having fun at their own expense. They don't come across as necessarily the most attractive people at the end of this movie. So here's this cuddly pop group basically undermining everything that had made it a tremendous success. Do you believe that was intentional on the part of the four individual monkeys, or was that something that just came about because of ineptness? That's a good question. I mean, you wonder if Jack Nicholson encouraged them to kind of rip the scab off and expose themselves, because they don't come off as likable at all in the movie. Of course, that's the polar opposite of the TV show when they're the heroes. So uh, it's a good question about exactly what was the attention here. I think 
had really hurt their careers. I mean, it tanked their careers. It, it was career suicide. Basically, nobody saw it. It barely opened up. And then Rafelson and Schneider and Nicholson, they all went on to huge things. And none of the monkeys really ever did anything that artistically credible afterwards. You can argue that, you know, Michael Nesmith certainly made some interesting country rock records and had a hand in the creation of MTV. And they're all, you know, able performers. But heads seemed to really tank their careers. There's some implications in your book, too, Eric, that Rafelson and Schneider did this intentionally. I believe it's true. I believe that Rafelson and Schneider basically admitted as much. I don't think the monkeys themselves knew. And when I wrote my first book, I went into that. And I understand, you know, I got some interesting feedback that they were uh, surprised to read that Rafelson and Schneider intended to basically blow up their careers with this movie. Well, I mean, what's the intention of making a movie that costs a million dollars and tanking this uh, multi-million dollar phenomenon? You have to wonder. And I believe that Rafelson and Schneider just wanted to wash their hands of it and go on to do other things in their life. And the truth is they really never lent those guys a hand afterwards. I think that's a shame. They were kind of orphaned after being swept up in this great tumult. You know, suddenly they're just kicked to the curb. Well, you actually, Eric, are kinder to Monkey's reunion efforts than uh, than some people might be. I mean, I, I, I don't get me wrong. I treasure my Monkey's records. I, I will champion Head. I've seen that movie a, a half a dozen times, and I love it. But I never wanted to see them in recent decades, especially without Mike Nesmith. Was there any value in seeing them come back together? Um, I was there when the four of them took the stage in 86, and I would argue with you, Jim, there. I, for like 10 minutes, it was really just so exciting to see the four of them. Nesmith only played a couple of songs on stage, mm-hmm. but people were screaming their heads off. It was, you know, I'd never seen it, you know, personally. Like, a, it was almost a, just a moment out of Beatlemania there. But, of course, it was very, very brief. And uh, there is something sad about, you know, the aging pop star. The truth is they're really not as interesting without each other as they are together. Well, it's an interesting lesson because uh, you look at the lessons of the monkeys, how they've been repeated over the decades. You know, we talked about the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren. I mean, the Sex Pistols in reality are really the monkeys in a lot of ways in terms of the way their career went up and down and imploded almost instantly. You look at NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys, all these manufactured pop groups of recent decades and the Svengali figures behind them, the whole idea of cross-marketing. Is it a legacy to be proud of? Because that seems to be where the monkeys' legacy is now. Well, I think you have to look at the monkeys two ways. You know, one as a band of people, individuals who actually made music and made head and did the TV shows. And then you have to look at the marketing angle, you know, the product. Is it something to be proud of? It's hard to say. How about Gorillas? you know, Damon Albarn's band, uh, mm-hmm. Gorillas, which it seems to, the very name Gorillas evokes the monkeys. I'm, I'm a fan. I think, I think they're very interesting. Oh, they're um, brilliant, yeah. There w- was a certain inevitability to all of this, that someone was going to put these pieces together and do it this way. The Monkees are probably the, one of the most influential groups in, in the history of pop music. I think that's fair to say. What their exact legacy is more difficult to pinpoint, but uh, they loom very large. It's amazing how many concentric circles connect to this phenomenon. could hide neath the wings of the bluebird as she sings 
the six o'clock alarm would never ring. But it rings and I rise, wipe the sleep out of my eyes. My shaven razor's cold and it stings. Cheer up, sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean to a Eric Lefkowitz is the author of Monkey Business, the revolutionary made-for-TV band. We spoke with him in 2011. Now you know how happy I can be. To share your beliefs and daydreams on the air, call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I will review new albums by singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Andrew Bird and the rock hip-hop duo Wizard. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Cheer up, sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean to a daydream believer and a Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a song called I on I. E-Y-E on I all run together by Andrew Bird from his new album, Break It Yourself. Greg, this uh, Chicago multi-instrumentalist, wildly diverse musician, has been enjoying a 20-year recording career. Greg, he's recorded for some of the most popular indie labels in America, including Ani DeFranco's Righteous Babe label and the Fat Possum label. Now he's on a label called Mom and Pop Music. He has seen his audience grow and grow. His last album, 2009's Noble Beast, debuted in the top five of the Billboard album charts. He is capable of selling out fairly large-sized 
theaters across the United States. For this album, he went down to his barn in western Illinois to record. It's called Break It Yourself. We're going to play a track from it, and then we'll come back and give our reviews. This song is called Near Death Experience Experience by Andrew Bird on Sound Opinions. a song called Near Death Experience Experience from the new Andrew Bird record Break It Yourself. That's probably my favorite song on the record, Jim. This sort of tango groove that he's got going in there, the little bit of quirkiness with that, and also a song in which he talks about the reaction of a bunch of people in a plane that's about to crash. You know, what are we going to do here? You know, how are we going to handle this potentially final minute of our life? An interesting scenario, fascinating arrangement. I love that song. I do not, however, love this album. Here's an artist that I respect a great deal for the way he's conducted his career, totally outside the margins in terms of his approach. As you mentioned, a lot of pre-rock influences in his songwriting and arranging jazz, classical, gypsy music a virtuoso violin player. You know, people make fun of the whistling or they bring it up every time they talk about Andrew Burke. He's a great whistler, okay? I admire that. But at the well, same there time... Is whistling on almost every song on this album. Well, yeah. and, and at the same time, I'm not really moved by it. I find a lot of these songs complicated and intricate, 
but not really moving in any way. And I think he moves a little bit closer to that in some of these songs in, in that he's allowing more of his personality and his personal life to shine through. For example, that song, Near Death, Experience, Experience, I can totally relate to it. I know exactly what he's singing about there. He's not using those $10 words and, and sort of creating these word puzzles. So yes, there's a more of an emotional directness here. What I'm missing, and what I heard earlier in his career, was this allegiance to swing music and groove. And I feel a lot of these songs really don't move. I'm hearing great musicianship, but I'm not hearing great songs. So I'm going to have to give this record a burn it rating because there are a couple of impressive moments, but he hasn't totally won me over yet. Well, Greg, like you said, I I respect Andrew Bird for the way he's conducted his career. No one will ever call him a cookie-cutter conformist. And so many people whose tastes I respect find deep emotional connections to his music. But I've been mystified, and there have been several significant hurdles. You have to buy the whistling. You have to buy not only the violin as a lead instrument in a rock band, fairly rare, but a particular kind of pizzicato plucking of the violin. It's not even the bowing of the violin. You have to buy his omnivorous love of all these kind of arcane sounds, and you had to buy the uh, thesaurus, you know, the lyrics that were like $20 words on the Scrabble board. He really has pared back. I think you're underplaying. He's speaking in English. He is talking directly from the heart. A song like, you know, Near Death, Death Experience, when he's singing, we'll dance like cancer survivors, like we're grateful simply to be alive. Man, I don't think I've ever heard an Andrew Bird lyric that, that resonated like that. It's interesting, though, even now that I understand what his themes are, that I still can't get over those other hurdles. Add to that, too, a very thin and reedy voice. It's a kind of slippery music that that you can respect without liking. And I have to be honest and say it's a trash it record for me. called High Off Life on Sound Opinions from a new album by a new group called Wizard, W-Z-R-D. You may be familiar, though, with the names in this group. Kid Cudi is the singer and the guitar player of all things, and his collaborator is Dot the Genius. This is the rock move by Kid Cudi after a couple of hip-hop-oriented releases. He is a protege of Kanye West, had a starring role on West's 2008 album 808s and Heartbreak, had a mixtape out that same year with the hit single Day and Night on it. Day and Night became a top five hit in 2009. Cuddy went on to make a couple of records, Man on the Moon, The End of Day in 2009, and Man on the Moon 2, The Legend of Mr. Rager, that established a unique persona in hip-hop, kind of a more of an introspective sound. I think Drake was very influenced by mm-hmm. these particular records that Kid Cudi was making. Now Cudi has taken a left turn. He's picked up a guitar, learned the guitar, if you believe the hype, while making this record, and collaborated on a bunch of rock songs with Dot the Genius. 
We're going to play a track from the new self-titled Wizard album, and then we're going to review it. Here is Love Hard by Wizard on Sound Opinions. What you gonna say to me? Mm, you wanna tell me something, then let it please be true. Now what you want from me? Never mind, don't say a thing to me. I wanna see what's in your eyes. See them never lie. Mm, will I be satisfied? Will you complete my life? The blueprint of peace, the solution to love. I found you. Now will you be true? You love song Then you already lost But more you love art You should let down your guard And follow your Protect me too. You love song, then you already lost. But more, you love art. You should let down your guard and follow your heart. song called Love Hard by the new group Wizard, WZRD on Sound Opinion, self-titled album, Kid Cudi and Dot the Genius. Essentially a two-man project, Greg, and what an awesome noise they make. <laughs> Wizard, Cudi has said, comes from the Black Sabbath track, The Wizard, and you can hear a lot of that kind of heavy stoner rock throughout this record. But there's other sounds, too. There's some Pink Floyd, there's some quiet acoustic stuff. You know, you said that Kanye West is Cuddy's mentor, and he has that same kind of cockiness. This guy thinks he can do anything. And he covers In the Pines, which many people, including Cuddy, call Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Now, it was first widely introduced to the world of folk traditional, brought to the world by Lead Belly, but forever claimed as his own by Kurt Cobain when Nirvana recorded it on MTV's Unplugged. And you know what? It ain't a half-bad version. My girl, my girl, don't lie. think that this is a great record. Now, it's galvanizing the hip-hop world because this guy has been a leading light of underground rap, and, and a lot of people have said, uh, you know, he's selling out and doing this rock move. 
I tell you, I, I don't see it as a blatant commercial marketing move like Little Wayne's ridiculous rebirth, I'm going to make a rock record. I see it up there with Kanye's 808s and Heartbreak, a Dark Night of the Soul kind of rock-oriented album from him, or Common's vastly underrated Electric Circus, where these artists were bringing into what is still fundamentally hip-hop a lot of fascinating rock sounds. I do not hear this as a rock record. I think this is a fundamentally hip-hop album that has some wonderful rock textures. On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, a very enthusiastic buy it from me. He's out there on the limb, all right, Jim, and I think the limb fell off uh, a while ago for me. I, no! I, all I'm hearing is amateur hour here. Yeah, you, it does sound like you just learned how to play the guitar. It does sound like you just learned how to sing. I mean, you know, Lil Wayne's Rebirth record, horrible record. I will give it this much. I think this is a better record than the Rebirth record by Lil Wayne, which sounded like a warmed-over Limp Biscuit record. He's obviously trying a, a different vibe here. But I'm thinking to myself, if I didn't know this was Kid Cudi, this was just some rock band off the street handing me this demo and saying, what do you think? I would have said, go back to the drawing board, kids, and learn how to play your instruments and learn how to sing and learn how to write some songs. Because really? I don't hear any of that on this record. I hear this as a self-indulgent move that is being put out by a major label, apparently, that is going to take some reparation on his part to make up for. I, I really loved what he did on the two Man on the Moon records. I think he was a, a truly distinctive voice in hip-hop. We both did. We were both fans. Absolutely, and I wish... He had either returned to that or done something more in a realm of his expertise because he is not a rocker. And uh, Wizard proves that indisputably. This is a trash at record as far as I'm concerned. Wow, I'm shocked. I don't think you heard the same record I did. What do we got on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a performance and an interview with the great Nick Lowe. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn with the able assistance of Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, our own wizard, is Tori Southside Malatia. You never come on the On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey Jim, my name is Ricky, and I'm in a 18-boy band in Kansas City called Punch It, Kick It, and I just got your tweet about Davy Jones passing. I just wanted to let you know that as a, as a gay kid, I grew up obsessed by 60s-era boy bands. And my very favorites were Paul McCartney of the Beatles and Davy Jones of the Monkees. I just wanted you to know that Davy's passing has made me really sad today. And I'm very grateful to you for the very respectful way that you passed along this news. Thank you. I'll be true to you. Yes, I will. I'll be true to you. Yes, I will. This is David calling. I'm from Nashville. Just listened to your review of the Springsteen record and felt compelled to call. Starting by saying I'm a massive Springsteen fan. I've seen him many, many times and will continue to, and he inspires me to great lengths. 
I'm the first to concede that his albums in the past 10, 12 years has been very, very disappointing and frustrating. Uh, this one, no exception, unfortunately. I don't know where he's gone wrong in his production and his albums, starting with Brendan O'Brien, who is absolutely the worst producer for him that there's ever been, just ruining album after album, song after song. It used to be the song would start, he'd start singing the song, the band would come in, they'd play the song, it was nice. first verse, some silly loop comes in and some instrument that just sounds so forced and unnatural. I, I don't know why he seems to think that he has to try these sounds to, to keep current that don't make any sense for his music. Had all this stuff been done on the river and darkness on the edge of town, it would have completely ruined those albums. So, all in all, a very frustrating sounding record by my greatest musical hero <laughs> thanks for attacking it honestly and keep up the great work yeah this is eric from the hudson river valley area in new york and i just listened to the podcast with uh, fred armison and of course the review of bruce springsteen and jim 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 jim, jim. i can't believe you're going to hold bruce responsible for Ronald Reagan trying to appropriate Born in the USA as his campaign slogan. I mean, just because Ronald Reagan can't do irony doesn't mean that Bruce can't. I love your show, and I expect more from you than that. Thanks. This is Vince from Richmond. I'd like to congratulate you on choosing Unsung by Helmet as your Desert Island Jukebox Choice of the Week. I think you're definitely going to need a song to get you riled up in berserker mode to go fight whatever's in the woods of that desert island. It also reminded me how much I love the next album, Betty by Helmet. That was one of my all-time favorites um, from that time period, and it's so underrated. Anyway, guys, keep up the good work. Sounds great. Messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.